It's episode 131 of the Improv London podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Moses, and this week's guest is Alison Goldie. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm extremely well, thank you, Stuart. Very honoured to be here. Fantastic, thank you for coming along. So you are a improv teacher for Hoopla, Hoopla Impro. What's that like? Well, it's lovely, actually, and there's many advantages to doing it, I must say. On a sort of personal, um, businessy level, it's so nice to have someone else well, a team of other people, organising the workshops, finding the students, and all I have to do is turn up and teach, because <laughs> I have run many classes on my own bat, um, off my own bat, I should say, uh, in the last few years. And of course, marketing and finding people is an enormous task. So it's wonderful to have a really well-established, reputable organisation which people can absolutely trust and they know that they've got sort of hand-picked teachers working for it um, and they can turn up and get you know a good course or courses so I feel really honoured to be part of that team and really glad about not having to do all that admin. <laughs> <laughs> so when you get people in off the street who have never improvised before is there a main thing you want to teach them? Is there a main message? What do you like? To, well, I don't know. Or, or what do you like? What do you particularly like teaching beginners? Well, yeah, I, I usually do teach beginners for Hoopla, although sometimes I teach the performance class as well. But all the same, they're, that, they're still fairly new, usually, in that course too. And I, I suppose, to begin with, you're just really building confidence. You know, there's, there's no escaping that. Some people are occasionally brimming with confidence. Maybe you'll get the odd actor coming through, for example. But in the main, people are new to it. Um, they may have seen it. They, they know what comedy is. They know what theatre is. But they have barely done any of it. And so you've got to get them used to the idea of performing in itself, which is no mean feat. Um, but also really enjoying it and, and seeing that teamwork is key so I think one of the first things that I say is don't worry I'm not going to be making you stand up in front of everybody in week two and embarrass yourself yes uh, they they always think that that's what's going to happen yeah, 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 <laughs> because yeah. I think they've probably seen too many horrible or, or dramas where people are auditioned and then humiliated and tortured by <laughs> uh, the auditioners um, so yeah, so that's absolutely key. Slowly building the confidence. I mean, Steve Rowe has a brilliant philosophy about this, about just m helping them to enjoy it from the word go and keep the enjoyment up. Yeah. And I think also, I like to keep the interest up. So there's you know, a certain amount of intellectual interest as well, without you ever getting academic or anything. It's an improv class. But I like to draw out some of the lessons for people so that they can see what an extraordinary sort of philosophy improv is, you know, and, and how many tools for life it's got in it. So it, it's actually, it's, it's very interesting what keeps happening lately because with the new sort of fashion for improv that it has exploded, so it's become this even bigger thing than it used to be when I was a youngster. Um, People, uh, oh no, let me get my thread back here. People um, don't necessarily know why they're there. They come because they've heard of this thing, maybe some friends have done it, they, their friends said, oh, it's really good. They turn up, they know very little about what's gonna happen. They might not have even seen many shows, which always surprises me, actually. How, how few shows people have seen. Mm. I mean, as a, as a group. Mm. And then um, I need to help them to understand its sort of validity in a weird way. Um, and that's, that can be a gentle thing that you have to sort of thread through the fun mm. as well. 
So how do you establish the validity? Of Involver? <laughs> well, I'm a coach as well. I'm a life coach as well. So one thing I do in that is um, you keep throwing the questions back to the group. So, And I think all good teachers do that too. Like, again, it's not an academic course. So it's not about getting the students to debate stuff. You're getting them to do stuff. It's a very active mm -hmm. form. And that's what you want more than anything. But I do say at the end of an exercise, especially one that might have been one of the sort of deeper or more profound sort of exercises, uh, what did you make of that? Or what did you get out of that? Or how did that make you feel? And maybe get canvas just one or two people and try and get some sort of little marker of what was achieved by that thing. Um, and, then, and then we can move on and always at the end, and I know Steve does this, I'm sure lots of other improv teachers do this, get people to give one little bit of feedback about the whole class. You know, what did you enjoy? What will you remember mm -hmm. from this class? Because I, I think if they can articulate that, they can go away and they will remember mm. having uttered it. Yes, they say uh, about films that if it has a good ending, then people will think that it was a good film. Um, so you know what happens at the end of something is important for you know for how people feel about something. Oh, absolutely! And I have made the mistake in the past of sometimes you know perhaps running out of time and not finishing really crisply, and then letting it you know letting the last exercise happen, and then it just sort of droops a tiny bit mm. at the end, and you can feel that sort of oh have we finished? Yeah. And it's just not satisfying, so I'm really hard on myself about that now. And, yeah. you know, yeah, have a good ending. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> Happy end, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favourite uh, game that you like running? Well, that's such a hard choice because I've got so many. Tell me about all of them in order, like. in detail. Well, be be because I do. Um, beginners a lot and that includes outside of hoopla as well i run a lot of beginners courses and i i'm off i, I do these um courses where i work in sort of retreat centers abroad oh wow so um i've people turn up on holiday and then i'm teaching them improv wow. and they might not even realize until they get there that that's what they're going to do because it's depending on the the the, the venue um, sometimes people just decide when they turn up which of a number of courses they're going to um, do a couple of hours of each day. Yeah. And I, so I might, I might get, you know, a bunch of really mixed people whose only main criteria is that they can afford to go on this holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm teaching them improv, which some of them have never heard of at all and don't even know what it is so yeah. I have to do a sort of sales pitch on it as a thing and then I'm teaching them from the very basics so that's just by way of saying that I'm very often teaching you know the absolute beginnings of things. So it's something probably hard to generalize but if you're is, is there different challenges from teaching people in that sort of environment from the sort of people that would come along to a Hooper class? I'd say that hoopla tends to attract younger people than those uh, holidays do. So, um, you know, neither is better or worse than the other, because I love teaching anybody, really. <laughs> um, but sometimes, if it, were, if it was a difficult group um, of older people, say, it might be because they have calcified a bit or they're you know a bit fossilized in their belief systems mm. uh, not to mention possibly their bodies so you know if they're like over 60 say or even older they might find it harder to just loosen up enough um, which is not to be hideously unfair to people of that age group who I'm more than willing to teach any any day of the week but it's just that, you know, if you've got a sort of pompous sort of type who can't believe that there's anything really in this and is doing it almost to prove you wrong, Ooh. then, you know, 
they are a tough customer yeah. and because they're paying for a holiday you've got to treat them gently and with incredible tact but you know I sort of pride myself on winning round people like this <laughs> brilliant and how, how, how do you win these people around because I've been in that sort of situation and I'm aware that I probably could win this person round but to do that, I'm going to have to spend significantly more time paying them attention. And I'm aware that I've got the rest of the class to consider as well. I don't know. Well, that's a very good point, Stuart. And I, I think, actually, in these contexts where I teach in these uh, retreat places, um, what happens is that as a teacher, because it's a residential course for a week or two weeks I'm there the whole time so I'm not just with them in the class so uh, I can exert the golden charm out of class as well right. and sort of you know have a chat with them as a human being over dinner yes. and you know do a bit of philosophizing on other occasions over tea and biscuits or whatever and, and so they can yes. get to see me as a human being and not just some teacher who's telling them off or you know what I mean yeah. Yeah, 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 so um yeah, you've got more of a chance to work on these people. Yeah. Whereas obviously in Hoopla, you've just got your two and a half hours and um, bang, 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 mm. off you go. And you're trying to, but but usually I'd say younger people, you know, are are less fossilized, of course. So, mm. which isn't to say, okay, I'm really riffing off now. Um, younger people can be more more scared mm. than older people sometimes, just because they're still forming and they haven't got as weathered and they haven't had so many life lessons so you know they might just be shyer mm. so there's a different sort of kindness and care that you have to take there and I suppose I'm really thinking on my feet here I'm really glad to be given the opportunity to think about this because um, what you might do what I might do with younger people is Try not to be like a school teacher because you don't want to just be replicating that sort of model. You know, we're not in school, you're grown ups now, this is life, and we are all adults together in a room. It's just that I've got a bunch more knowledge than you. So, getting that balance of between teacher and mate is a really interesting sort of conundrum. And I think perhaps being older, you know, I'm, I'm sort of of the, an older generation of improvisers, I can, um, you know, command, I can get some respect and everything, just sort of by, by virtue of being older um, and being quite sort of um, rooted and down to earth and things. But I, I can um, maybe find dilemmas like uh, not having exactly the same cultural references sometimes. Interesting. So, for example, I'm not that bothered about Harry Potter. <laughs> you know? no, I mean, that's a shocking statement <laughs> in, in the improv scene where more groups have a Harry Potter show than don't have a Harry Potter show. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sorry about that, but I, it ain't going to happen. You know, it wasn't part of my youth, and it can't ever be, so... But, it, it, I mean, that's sort of the whole cultural references question is very interesting, because it may be uh, an age thing, it may be that, you know, people grew up in a different country, or it may just be that people just have different interests. And I find that very interesting as a sort of a question as how do you deal with that in improv scenes? Well, I think you have to come clean about it when it occurs. So, in fact, I did this in my class last night. I mentioned we were doing a, a class on status. And um, I normally ask for a little brainstorm about uh, sitcoms and dramas where they can see status being played out um, to illustrate to them what I mean by status. And so... I always used to trot out a bunch of surefire sitcoms when I was teaching 20 years ago that everyone would know. Of course, that's no longer the case. You know, it's the Netflix generation. Um, we're all watching different things now. 
we don't have all that in common. I mean, somebody brought up 40 Towers last night. Do you know, that was the exact Towers I, I was thinking of, because yeah. I was trying to work out, okay, so where is Basil? He thinks he's high status, but actually he's low status? Well, it always works out, and uh, this just takes a, a small amount of thinking on behalf of my class, but um, Mrs. Faulty is Sybil. in charge. Yes. Um, and then Polly is second because uh, she is yes. really sensible. Yes. Then Basil, then Manuel. Manuel. Yes. And you know, to my mind, you don't get a better example of extreme low status than Manuel because he's actually kicked around yes. like a dog. You know, and so when you can bring that into a class to illustrate how low status can be extremely funny. Mm. People who have squeamishness about low status can understand how it can really work in a comic context. Mm. But if you're using Faulty Towers as an example these days, how many people can you expect to have seen it? Well, interestingly, a young person in my class brought it up last night. Huh? So uh, I don't know whether that's because their parents had shown it to them or whether this is part of the canon of comedy that is still being passed down. Mm. You know, and there was a woman from an another country who didn't know it. Mm. So then I had to sort of quickly explain it to her so she was on the same page. But um, yeah, it's really interesting. So I, somehow, so I suppose when I'm thinking about improv scenes, I'm thinking that if they're relying on the sort of cultural reference then I think that that scene is probably going to fail because it's, for me, it's the emotional, it's the relationship of the people in the scene that's important. So even if you don't know the references, I still think you could play a successful scene with somebody that does know the references. I don't know. No, well, I completely agree. I mean, every time I think about um, this, I remember a scene that a long-form um, piece that my company, Spontaneous Combustion, did many years ago up at the Edinburgh Fringe. And we used to do a literary uh, long-form. And it was very wide open. You know, we, did, we, we asked the audience what literary genre they wanted us to do the piece in. And usually, you know, at least one or two of us knew the author, so we could sort of wing, wing it from there. Um, but this time, somebody said Nathaniel Hawthorne, <laughs> right? And an American visitor to our shores. And we all looked at each other, all these English people, and went, I don't know who that is. And so we said to the, the audience person, um, can you just give us three facets? Yeah. You know, tell us what he, what sort of style he wrote in and, and so on. And... I can't remember exactly what they were now, but it, I don't know, it was something like homely or moralistic or usually feature, you know, uh, suffering heroin or something. Mm. And, then, and then we just, we ran it, we just went with that, played it to death in, in sort of 19th century um, style with American accents, because we'd got that. And then we said to this bloke at the end, and how was that? For, he said, hey, that was great. You know, you really captured Nathaniel Hawthorne there. That was amazing. <laughs> I know that um, Notflix, the improvised musical, who uh, improvise a film, they very much do that. So they ask, they, they ask for um, a film that somebody's seen recently, so they have a title, and then they ask them for a, a few things about that film. Because... You know, inevitably, some people within the group will have seen the film and some people won't. But by getting a little bit of a description from the person that's given the suggestion, it gives them enough to do. Yeah. And then, because sometimes, I mean, I don't know how many people in that audience would have known Nathaniel Hawthorne. No, hardly so, any. You know, <laughs> if everybody in Spontaneous Combustion had known Nathaniel Hawthorne and done a, a perfect replica of it, but nobody in the audience apart from this one person... I don't know how successful exactly. that would have been. Exactly. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, the story's got to stand. Um, the characters got to stand as characters, irrespective of the genre mm. and, or the author or whatever. So, yeah, you can definitely make it work. But how did we get onto that? Oh, because cultural references. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I don't... I could. I'm sure I could enjoy a, a Harry Potter show, but if... 
if it was just about books ticking Harry Potter yeah. references, I would be bored. Yeah. It's interesting. Some people, um, they, depending on how they approach improv, they will do the research. If, especially if they're doing short form uh, shows where they're getting these suggestions quite a lot, you know, they'll go and watch Star Wars if they've never seen Star Wars, or they'll go and read Harry Potter if they've never read Harry sure. Potter. But equally, some people will just trust that they can do a scene regardless of whether they know the cultural reference or not. I think if I was doing more performing these days, I definitely would be having yeah. to swap up on some of the stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's because I'm only an occasional performer now. I, I don't. Um, uh, as a teacher, mm, not sure I need to. Mm. Certainly not when I'm teaching mainly beginners because I'm giving them the sort of universally applicable tools. Yeah. I'm not giving them genre work much at this stage. That's exactly what I was yeah. thinking, because I know Katie Shoes teaching a Hooper course on genre, and if mm. you're going to be teaching that, then you know need to know what the tropes of the genre are so you can emulate it. But if you're not yeah, sure, yeah, absolutely. Place. I mean, it, it is fascinating to me, and I, I would almost like to just sit down with a bunch of, of younger would-be improvisers and say, Okay, I'm going to throw throw some genres at you now. Can you tell me if this has any resonance or meaning for you? You know, mm. westerns. Um, you know, sitcoms set in bad hotels. You know, and just see if they know what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, that would be interesting. I think westerns are kind of. I think. Well, I don't know. I'm going to find some young people to ask. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not your target audience. Um, but I mean, they keep getting revived, don't they? Yeah, yeah. But they were, you know, I was weaned on Westerns. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's <laughs> um, yeah, an interesting And one. different sorts of sci-fi. Mm. And also the whole Marvel world, for example. Mm. You know, well, I'm, I'm, I love playing superheroes and things, but spe specifics about the Marvel, Marvel people? Nah, not so much. So mm. unless you're gonna, <laughs> unless you're going to do a Marvel-based improv show, I don't think you need to know specifics. I suppose what I think about is if you're the sort of person that enjoys exploring these cultural references, um, then go for it. Find out, you know, find out about Forty Tales, watch Forty Tales, or whatever. It's only if it starts to become a chore and you feel obliged to do it, then then yeah, know, yeah, it exactly. Be a joyful thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know. I feel like I am sticking to my principles in that, uh, like, like we just said, I'd rather see a good story mm. than something that's just uh, some sort of attempted replica mm. of any sort of genre piece. Yeah, and you know, things like love stories are everywhere and and endless and universal. So you're never gonna yeah. go wrong with something like that, are you? Yeah. And status work is. The set has been the same since the year dot, you know. Mm. So you uh, you have written a book. I have written a book. The improv book, improvisation for theatre, comedy, education, and life. I'd like to cover all the bases. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about how this came about. Well, it was quite hilarious, really, because I um, I didn't plan to write a book because I'm a modest sort of a soul. And I also thought there were probably enough really good improv books out there, and why would you need another Keith Johnston book or, um, you know, anything by any of the great uh, pioneers of the, of the form? And then I went to a party at the, what turned out to be my publisher, <laughs> uh, with a friend of mine who'd had a play published by them. And we arrived on a sweaty hot summer day having cycled there and I was wearing cycling shorts I can't quite believe this because I'm really not a sporty sort of person so I don't know what possessed me <laughs> to wear such a hideous garment <laughs> and we turned up and it was really sort of marquee-ish and posh with people in long floaty dresses and a catered banquet and all this so I felt like a complete plonker <laughs> and I didn't have any place to fit in to this. I had nothing I'd written that I could talk about. My friend went off and because he had had a play written, he could go and talk to people with uh, impunity. And I just sort of loitered, stealing food and feeling really embarrassed. 
and with people actually walking past me because I didn't look important or, or attractive enough to talk to. And eventually I got sick of this and sort of went to catch my friend's attention. He was in this group of people. And I overheard one of the guys in the group say, the only trouble with uh, this company is that we don't have a book on improvisation. And I literally raised my hand and shouted, I will write that book. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and he said, who are you? <laughs> and I said, I'm Alison Goldie and I've been teaching improvisation for 25 years. <laughs> wow. It's amazing. I know. I know. What a lucky break, eh? Talk yeah. about, you know, snatching the moment yeah. and uh, taking a risk and all that. Um, so he said, okay, um, I will send you the criteria for a proposal. I, I did that. My God, that was a huge piece of work. Yeah. But it really um, stood me in good stead when it came to writing the book because I had to break down every chapter, what I would put in it. I had to go and look at the, the whole market of books that already existed, find out how I could be different enough from these things to justify public publication. Mm. And, um, and then... Uh, when I got the go-ahead, then then write it, and I really enjoyed writing it. Yeah, you know, it was just like putting all my work into a book. It really didn't hurt, Stuart. Honestly, it yeah, was so yeah. nice to to do, such a pleasure to do. And how often can you say that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, many people like the idea of having written without <laughs> having to want to actually do the writing. But, uh... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I do like writing, I must admit. You know, I have written quite a few things. I've written a lot, whole bunch of plays in my life and, uh, um, you know, uh, blogs and what have you and theatre reviews and things. So I do I do write and yeah. I'm, you know, I exercise that muscle. Uh, but I'd never had a book published. So it was great. It was such a great feeling. So what, what angle did you take that made it stand out from the other books that were published? Well, in... In honesty, you know, there is a there is something of a retread of what I learnt, which is very much the Johnston school. So I was so inspired by him, there was no way I couldn't be mentioning um, a lot of the things that he discovered in his initial explorations. And I think what I do differently um, is... Uh, I do bring some of that stuff more up to date because his book is very old now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's fift nearly fifty years old. Um, so I, there's a lot more modern references. Yes, in there. There, are some <laughs> there are some outdated references. Let us, <laughs> let us be kind and call them outdated references. <laughs> um, so there's a, yeah, and I tried not. You know, it's very difficult. And I mean, my book has already been reprinted a few times, but I know at some point I'll have to go into it again and make sure that the the references are still up to date and change them if they're not um, but so that, yeah there's a lot more of that I really explicitly wanted to make the games easy to understand so I've got a lot more games in there than Keith would have in his um, and which just comes from being a practicing improviser and, and a teacher for all these years and I I explain them painstakingly in, in contemporary language, you know, so uh, I wanted all teachers just to be able to look at it and go, oh yeah, I get that, I can teach it, rather than if you look at somebody like Viola Spolin or one of these <laughs> earlier people, you know, I used to read her book and think, I can't bloody understand this. How yes. am I supposed to teach this exercise? It sounds so complicated. Yes, you can see where why she's important to the history of the art form, but equally it's not the most improvisation. What's it, I can't remember what we call now. Oh, theatre games. Theatre games, something. I'm going to edit that bit out. Uh, but, <clears throat> uh, but yeah, it's not the most accessible of books. No, no, you know, and this was the stuff that was around when I was initially learning. Yeah. So I thought, let's make it, you know, fun, modern, easy to read. Let's stick a cha whole chapter in there about improv for devising, oh, right, yeah, which yeah. is what I've done a lot of hmm. uh, as, a, as an actor in, in my own theatre companies and also as a director. You know, I, I love improv for devising. You know, I know that 
actors that have been doing it since time immemorial. But I really wanted to sort of nail some ways that you can use it. Mm. Um, so it's a really good tool. So there's loads of ideas in there about how you can trigger your show, whatever your show is, solo or ensemble or whatever, um, by using improv. And then it's got one chapter about the life lessons, you know, which again I know has been done in some other books, but I thought let's bring it together in this book uh, as we're on the subject <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and just sort of do a nice summary of, of what's available to you. So if one was going to devise using improv, there are mm. a few kind of tips, a few broad principles, because um, the very little experience I've had of this, mm. um, we ran some scenes we've had the same sort of scene uh, we would run the same sort of the same scene more or less again and again sometimes swapping out people and things like that and a couple of people would be writing down things that they thought could be used this is probably more sketch than theatre mm -hmm. and uh, none of the things I said or did were ever written down um, and it's not like I thought I'd done amazing things or said anything really good and it deserved to be written down nothing got written down so uh... mm. <laughs> well I, I'll, I was in a, a two-woman theatre company called The Weird Sisters for a long time and we, um, we were good friends so we had a lot of uh, personal you know, freedom with each other so that you could stick the two of us in a room with or without a director and we could just play and play and play for hours, um, which we did. And we would have give ourselves a theme, like a what do we fancy this show's going to be about? You know, we'd literally start from nothing. We didn't go in with any sort of concept for any of our shows. Um, and one, we decided we were done to, wanted to do a whole show about love, and it wasn't just going to be love between, um, you know, intimates, but it was going to be about family love and uh, crushes as well as long-term relationships and all sorts of different manifestations of it, uh, different sexualities, you know, because our shtick was that we, just as in, in improv, we could play anything. Mm. And we would play a number of different characters each to create all these scenarios. So we would just go and improvise around love. Or, you know, we'd improvise a couple having a row. Or we'd improvise a proposal. Or we'd improvise somebody being voyeuristic about someone else. You know, we'd just find a number of situations that could be connected. Mm. To that subject and then if we had a director in the room with us and we would often just press gang our friends into doing that um so, you know, preferably people with a little bit of theatrical <laughs> understanding <laughs> or half a brain um, and then we might get them to rec to make notes uh, sometimes we just literally record stuff um and sometimes we'd film stuff and sometimes we would just um improv for a little while sit down, immediately discuss it, work out what we wanted to keep from what we just did. And, you know, and that way we just found characters and stories over and over again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's not rocket science, really. Just allowing yourself to play, really, and also really honouring each other. So, you know, I can hear that maybe you didn't feel brilliantly honoured by not having your work considered. Um, I, I, well, no, actually, I feel that it wasn't that I did great things that weren't recognised. I was probably just having an off day, but I was like, yeah, these things happen. No, but <laughs> it's you know, it is always teamwork, and even if even if the team's just two people, and and, and even if, because I've done a lot of improvising solo, just with the director as well, to create a solo show, and that's still teamwork because the two of us, you know, were very much collaborating on what material I should keep, what I should throw out, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And I think that, you know, you're always contributing to teamwork. Yeah. No, nobody's dead weight. <laughs> really, you know, even if you're dead weight, you, there's, there's some sort of interesting contribution there because you're teaching the others about what happens if there's dead weight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to have contributed to the learning that was going on. <laughs> yeah, so there's so many things you can do. I mean, I think one of my... Something that I actually find challenging myself as an artist <laughs> um, is being untidy 
because I am tidy in my mind and in you know in my home not not ridiculously so but I, fi I find it hard to be just let myself be chaotic because I'm always trying to make sense of things or um, order stuff and it's so great you know great lesson from improv for devisers is be really untidy you know it is that thing about just brainstorming and but also the letting the room be untidy having props and costumes just lying around the room which you can pick up at any moment don't start tidying them up you know it's like when you see a kid's parent tidying them up when they're still trying to play yeah. you know you're destroying that child's imagination you know you're not letting them have free reign and you know basically you should have a whole day in a junky room you know where you can do anything you could rip all your clothes off you could you know dress up like a cavalier or you can shout scream run around be silent you know just do anything that is the best way to mm. devise fantastic how did you how did you discover improv what's your improv origin story oh okay so i was 26 years old and although I'd done drama at university we'd hardly done any improvisation it was so weird we just went straight into scripted dramas all the time and hardly any of the directors used any improv at all and it wasn't taught as a subject then and um, so I didn't discover it until I'd already been a performer I was in a cabaret act called The Wild Girls on the, on the nascent comedy circuit, alternative comedy circuit, as it was called then. And, uh, and then we, The Wild Girls, did about three years, having a lot of fun, doing quite well. And then my mate left. Suddenly I had nothing to do didn't know what my next project was. I was unemployed, didn't have any money, living in a repulsive tower block in the middle of nowhere, feeling depressed. And I it was the first time in my life I thought, is this depression? I think this might be depression. And at some point I motivated myself enough to go down the road to the Oval Theatre, Oval House in South London, and join an improv class. Wow. And it was run by this guy called Barry Grantham, who to me seemed elderly at the time, probably about the same age as I am now. <laughs> um, and he was delightful. And he was a proper old musical performer, you know, real old school song and dance man and but he picked up loads of improv and he and he taught this ramshackle group. <laughs> and but there were people in that group that went on to have careers in children's T V and things like wow. that. And uh do you remember Trev and Simon? Oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah they yeah, were yeah. in that improv group. Wow. And um a comedian called Simon Bly who went on to great things and um, and I'm, I have to say it wasn't particularly sort of um, rigorous <laughs> in its training <laughs> it, it was a bit try a bit of this try a bit of that try a bit. but it was so cheering and it really gave me some performing confidence back yeah. and that was the beginning wow and then I went on to do theatre sports from that, oh, right, which was just getting going in London. Um, the people from Improbable, Lee and Phelim, were a couple of the teachers on that. Alan Marriott was in there, um, Guy Dartnell, and they they were doing they was they were making theatre sports shows happen and doing classes on the side. And we used to perform at the Donmar Warehouse after the main house show closed on a Friday night at sort of 
we would do a theatre sports show. So yeah. my, that was my very first time on stage. Wow. Was in a West End theatre. <laughs> <laughs> Gave you a taste for uh, <laughs> that perhaps would not be fulfilled. By, uh... So how how did you find theatre sports? How did you find the sort of the competitive? I am using inverted mm. commas, but the competitive side of it, because some people love it and some people find it less helpful. I think it was great training, really, really good training. Um, I don't think I would have wanted to carry on indefinitely doing it, um, because a lot of the um, sort of trimmings of it, they had to be so good. So yeah. like the judge, uh, the referee had to be amazing, an amazing compare. The judges had to be good comedians, you know, the whole, all the uh, sort of ancillary characters and the format had to be so strong. And if you had a weaker night with that, uh, that could help to undermine the show as well. Um, but out of theatre sports, uh, we formed Spontaneous Combustion, which uh, settled down to be five of us in the end. But we had a few very interesting actors and people who went on to other interesting things who were originally in Spontaneous Combustion, like Patrick Marble was one of the original members oh, wow. <laughs> of Spontaneous Combustion. <laughs> and um, Jake Arnott, who went on to be a brilliant novelist. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we, we, oh, some re really interesting guests we had. But then we settled down into a five and we were together for a dozen years. Wow. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we quickly found long form. And once we'd done that, we just felt really happy being able to do both long form and short form shows and and then performing regularly with both of those. Yeah. Yeah, because you don't have to choose. You can do both. Yeah. It's all the same yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. Good improv is good improv, regardless of whether it's long form or short form. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you get bad improv that's short form and bad improv that's long form. This is my new theory. Good Ooh, improv yeah. is good, and bad improv is bad. <laughs> Correct. Regardless of what it is. How very true. So, in addition to, you mentioned being a life coach, in addition to um, coaching improv, you also coach flirting. I have been known to run flirting courses. Okay. Yes, indeed. So, I think this is an interesting area. <laughs> yes. Because I'd like a few tips. <laughs> um, so, in improv as in life, I feel that flirting done in an honourable way can be a delicious, delightful thing. Mm. But equally, done wrong, it can be a nasty, creepy kind of thing. Mm. So, how does one do the former and avoid the latter? Well, what excellent questions, because obviously um, something has cracked us all wide open since Me Too, and now men and women are having to sort of examine themselves and examine the past and see, uh, you know, where they might have been in error, um, whether it's as a woman being somehow in collusion with bad behaviour or as a man whether or not he's been responsible for some um, awkward or unpleasant behaviour and it's uh, yeah it's huge this isn't it it's absolutely huge so um, where when I start when I started teaching flirting classes it had there was a lot more innocence around it you know um, you could talk about these things without you could you could play with it in a you know, trust, making sure, of course, that the boundaries were set in the room. Um, you know, I, w I was going to be there making sure nothing unpleasant was happening. Um, but you could, you could uh, have some sort of consensus that it was all right to play mm. in this way. And now it's more complicated. So there's no doubt about that. Um, and... It, I mean, it's so pat to say it's down to the individual, but in many ways it is. If it feels wrong, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if it feels right, it's right. <laughs> um, I can see it could be really hard for men to know 
if it's all right to come on to a woman or to even compliment her or, you know, is that going to look creepy? The truth is that, that women still want to find love and have relationships with men, you know, straight women. Of course they do. Uh, so we've got to work with this, you know, the the species needs to be continued <laughs> um, and it would be such a shame if all of this just made us uh, really um, cramped and, and so worried that we can't have any flirting anymore so um, I'm trying I'm, you know you can hear me sort of watching my, my words here because I want to be really clear and careful about this um, I think something that you can always do is ask permission. You know, is it all right if I do this? You know, do you mind if I sit next to you? I'm sorry, am I too close to you here? You know, stuff around personal space. Interesting. You know, don't just... I, I, I think guys can do this because they don't realise how much women can get jumpy when their personal space is encroached. Mm. And I think even nice guys can do this. They just don't realise. So checking that you're, you're not invading somebody's personal space and if you're not sure, asking them if it's all right. And, the, and then that asking people thing, you, just, you can just keep doing it. Is this all right? There's no need to go, you know, cringing about mm. it. There's no need to say, God, I'm so sorry, I'm a man, I feel terrible about being one, please forgive me. You know, still stay, stay a man. That's fine. You know, just yeah. be yourself, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, with whatever, whoever you are, with whatever you've got, be yourself, but ask permission and, and check, check everything's okay. And then, you know, what I do in my flirting classes, people think that I'm going to give them a whole bunch of really you know, miraculous tips. But in actual fact, what it always boils down to, and this is what the group will come up with, is it's about good communication. No, there is no substitute for just a lovely conversation where two people are sharing things, appreciating each other, learning things. Mm -hmm. You know, and having goodwill towards that other human being. In fact, that is the best flirting, you know. And then in that conversation, you might then be able to communicate a little twinkle. You know, you might, you feel like somebody's liking you. They're doing things with their body language to show you that they like you. They're angling themselves towards you. They're looking right into your face. They're smiling a lot. They might even touch you. They might touch your arm or your hand. And then you know that they like you, that they trust you, they feel safe with you. So I think men, in particular, really need to start reading women's body language mm. much more successfully than they have done. Sorry, guys. And, but women the same, because women can also sort of steam in, thinking that it's all right to maul men. Even I've, I've seen women sort of punching men as if that's okay, you know, as if that's some sort of primal mating ritual, <laughs> and because a guy is bigger than them, that they, that they can get away with it. But some guys would find... Most guys, what the hell is this stranger doing, you know, <laughs> yes. nuzzling up to me or punching, you know. You, you, we've got to have much more aware, awareness mm. about that. Yeah, and as you say, it comes down to communication. So as in improv, so in life, mm. it's being aware of the other person's reaction and, and judging what you're doing and, and then reading what, what their reaction is. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I know that if I... I just think I think it would be a shame to lose those kind of scenes in improv because I think they can be delightful to watch and they can be delightful to play. Um, but I would always be aware of um, generally if I was going to try and play those scenes, it would be with somebody that I knew, just so that they know what, so we know what each other are like in real life as well as in an improv scene. Um, You're talking about some sort of love scene. Oh, just even flirting or kind of attraction mm -hmm. or that kind of thing. 
but where you're acting it yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Don't, don't think it more, in, yeah, just in an improv mm. scene now. Mm. You know, because that can be, you know, really delightful, you know, to see a sort of, you know, a chaste but romantic scene can mm. be a lovely thing mm. to see. Mm. I'm not even, you know, I'm not even touch, thinking about touch or anything like that, but just even, you know, when you play a scene where two people make that sort of connection, it can be a really delightful thing to see. Oh, God, it's beautiful, heartwarming yeah. stuff. yeah. You know, but what I keep saying, and I do find myself saying this more in my classes, actually, is we are acting here. Mm. You know, we are playing characters. And as such, I believe it's all up for grabs. You know, Mm. I know that we are going to sometimes come across something that we realise is just too uncomfortable to do. Um, And... I urge people to sort of draw their own lines or, or, or you know, it, I think we're getting into racism stuff is really very interesting to see what is and is not possible there. You know, could you ever, could a white person ever play somebody of a different nationality who is not the same colour as them? You know, that is a whole very interesting subject. I would say no. I would say de- no... I would say no most of the time, yes, okay. yeah, and then yeah. I would say, but is there a way, you know, where yeah, okay. with the with the um, uh, permission of your black comrades in the group, or you know, is there some way that this could be used and commented upon as an interesting thing? Yes. But it would be so complex, yeah. you know, it would be so incredibly complex, uh, but. Oh, but I like not just sort of saying no categorically. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I also think that you know things like, you know, once upon a time, we used to have men playing women all the time as a comedy thing, you know, and it was hilarious. Now a man plays a woman, it's like, is that okay? As long as they're of the same racial. <laughs> um, I well, I yes, I think that is okay, and. Um, I almost deliberately will not cast by gender. I'll cast mm. men as women, women as men. I love it, and I think I absolutely want that freedom to play men. Mm. Uh, but um, is if a man just does some sort of ghastly stereotype of a woman, right, okay. is that okay? But so the problem there is not the fact that he's playing a woman; it's the fact that he's doing bad improv or bad performance. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where I think, that's how I would divide that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not the fact that he's playing a woman badly, it's the fact that he's playing badly, I think. But then, you know, uh, as we all know, stereotypes are really useful for improv, especially when you haven't got any costume and you're just trying to signal very quickly the who, what, where of a scene. So some guy might go tottering on high heels talk in a squeaky voice and stick his tits out to convey that he's playing a woman Mm. is that or is that not okay Um, (laughs) it's very interesting and yes the whole thing about the use of cliches as shortcut is very interesting and um, how much you rely on that and the expectations of the group and the audience that certain things are going to be certain ways Mm. I think is really interesting it is fascinating I mean, I would, for example, you've just made me think, I would love to play a scene, a love scene, where I was the man and a guy played the woman. Mm. Oh, my God, I'd like to do that now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it would be such fun to see what stereotypical stuff came up. Yeah. And, you know, to have it as a sort of experiment Mm. with an audience to see what they made of it. Yes. You know. Yes. Because I'm when I play men now as well. I, I mean, I've played loads of men in both shows and improv. I think, God, I, I'm not going to be a ball scratching yobbo. That's just too cheesy for words. But how am I conveying this? The subtleties of, of the masculine experience, given that you know there are thousands of different sorts of men in the world, <laughs> as there are thousands of different sorts of women in the world. You know, yes. it's so subtle, isn't it? When you start getting into it, yeah. but maybe that is really hopeful for the future that we can enjoy playing these subtle variations of. Yeah, and I think it, it's about observing people and 
playing them as realistically as you can. And the more interested you are in other people, the better you understand them, the better you'll be at playing them on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, improv is there to, uh, because it's, it's happening right now, it's utterly contemporary, we can do the commentary on it. We can, we can be sending it up, we can be drawing attention to the cliches, to the bad behaviour, to the, to the contemporary discussions about sexuality and, and Me Too and, and all the rest of it. So, you know, it, it is a place for radical experimentation if we're brave enough. Mm. I'm just leaving a moment for the listeners to think about that. <laughs> but, you know, that was moving on a bit from flirting. But, um... <laughs> no, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think these things, are, these things are important in life and they're important in improv. Um, it's, you know, we live in really interesting times, in turbulent times, but I think the fact that we are discussing these things, that these things are an issue, I think we need to get through this and then hopefully things will be better. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would think so. You know, I think our biological impulses are going to mean that we will move forward on this because we have to, you know, we absolutely have to. And also, the sexes can learn so much from each other and you don't have to be one or the other anymore, yeah. you know? Sudden, we've got wonderful freedom now to sit wherever we want on the on the spectrum, to own what I may have thought were previously sort of masculine qualities of my own, and and say you know I'm a boyish girl or I'm a girlish boy you know, uh, I love all that I, I I love it and I think it gives us real freedom here and it makes me you know. Just the freedom around, like, say, having a relationship with a guy and, of course, it's okay if he cries. You know, me as a woman not colluding in that ridiculous old stereotype that for a man to cry is a sort of weakness. You know, you've got to believe that there's more accessible to us just as human beings. You know, I want to be able to be a little toughy. I don't want to have to be demure, you know, and I never have done. And I feel so much more freedom now that I can be both a woman and have uh, and do things that boys do. Men do. You know. It's fantastic. Brilliant. <laughs> if someone were to step on stage of you, what could they do to delight you? <gasps> what a lovely question. I love being endowed with something really big status-wise. So I love it if someone comes on and says, Your glorious majesty, how might I be of service to you? Or, dribble, come here. On your knees now, beg for your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> demonstrating your Johnstonian, <laughs> uh, the influence of Johnston in real life. <laughs> Fantastic. And what would you say when improvising? What's your signature move? What's what saves the day? What brings the house down? What makes people say, "Classic Goldie"? <laughs> oh gosh. I think. Oh dear! Are you thinking of? Are you saying something that sort of completes the night, or could it be something that's part of the process of? Yeah, either your sort of your your go. What's what's classic you? Okay, very classic me is being a bit of a goofy clown, um, and also a quite androgynous. So I do, I do come on sometimes as this sort of uh, low-status, happy, clowny, quite childlike character, and I'm very happy in that character. 
and I like they're mischievous they can go into the audience oh yeah, yeah, yeah you know yeah, yeah, yeah. they can talk to the audience in a sweet winning sort of a way yeah. that just as a sort of grown up middle aged woman would seem inappropriate and weird <laughs> and um, they uh, that little character that I do uh they can fit in in a lot of scenes, you know. They seem to be quite sort of durable. Mm. So I'd say that is quite a common one of mine that is usually um, uh, quite appealing. Fantastic. <laughs> so the last thing that I have to say is thank you for being a guest on the Improv London podcast. Well, it's been a great pleasure, Stuart. You've made me think about things. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> I made this. That's improv! <laughs> <laughs>